Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to page 973. 973 is Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verses 15. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, either the first or second letter ever written, or part of the New Testament ever written, written around 48 A.D., 15 years or so after the death of Christ. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Galatians chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, thank you that you've given to us your word. We pray that you would open our minds to understand what it says and you would move our hearts to obey it. We come in here oftentimes cold in mind and heart, and yet as we sing it's our and pray, it's our desire that you would open up our hearts and our minds. But it is really our desire that we would find ourselves this morning in your presence and you would open your own lips and speak to us, speak to our hearts, which we know you do by your Spirit, through your Word. We ask that you would make that a reality this morning as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are only two ways of acquiring anything in this world, at least two legitimate ways of acquiring anything in this world. One is to purchase it, and the other is to receive it as a gift. When you purchase something, you give to the seller an equivalent value in some way. It can be your time, it can be goods that you exchange with him or her, or it can be money that you give. But once you've given that, they are obligated to give you whatever it is you've agreed upon to purchase. And a gift, on the other hand, is something very different. A gift is given freely, simply out of the kind intention of the giver. And when a gift is given, there are three things that are true. Uh, the first is that if it's truly a gift and not a payment of some kind or a bribe, then the giver is under no obligation to give it. It's, it's offered, given freely just by his or her desire to do it. Give it freely, graciously, uh, simply out of affection. And also a gift is something that we do not pay for. We don't earn it in some way. We simply receive it. And lastly, when we receive a gift, we have no right to feel any sense of accomplishment because we haven't done anything. We only should feel gratitude. That's the proper response to a gift. Now, there's illegitimate ways of getting things in this world, obviously, but I was, I was saying that basically there's only two ways of acquiring property that are legitimate. That is, you can either uh, give it, receive it as a gift or you can purchase it. Now, in this book, what the Apostle Paul is dealing with is really that subject, and he's seeking to answer a question. When you think of salvation, the, the message of God forgiving people 
of God receiving people into relationship with himself, acquitting them of sin, salvation. Is salvation a form of purchase or is it a gift? Is it something earned by us or is it something that is freely given and simply received by us? And his point in the book is that the teaching of the New Testament is that it is a gift. And he uses a technical phrase throughout the book called justification through faith. To be justified means to be acquitted. It's like a, an image of standing before the bar of God's justice. And if God acquits a person, he is justifying them, saying that they are now free to go. In this case, he's acquitting them of sin, which is an offense against him, and he's granting relationship to a person. And the New Testament says this is a gift, not a payment. And in the letter, Paul goes to great lengths to explain this in great detail. And it's one that I've said, you really need to get right. You need to think about this one carefully because all of religion, as it's properly conceived, and as you and I grew up thinking of, if just left to ourselves, all of religion is on one side, and that is the side of purchase. And the New Testament, or the Bible, I would say, alone is on the side of saying that, no, this is a gift, it's not a purchase, The the idea that it is a purchase is so rooted in the human heart, so built as we go through life, that you really have to think through carefully, because this is the the core question of the Christian faith. Christianity stands or falls with this idea that salvation is a free gift. Now, what happens in this passage is that he's presenting a series of contrasts between two things, the promise given to Abraham and the law that came later. We talked about this some last week, but let me just recap uh, briefly. The Bible, when it opens, has 11 chapters that you might think of as prehistory. They they tell us things that happened before anything was written down in uh, human history. But then when you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, you're introduced to this person named Abraham. And Abraham, we can place in time at about 2150 B.C. in what is now Iran. And uh, while he's living there, God comes to him and gives him specific promises, or you might say a multifaceted promise that ends with the words, last facet of the promise, in you and in your seed or your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The rest of the Bible, in a sense, unfolds this promise that was given to Abraham. Now, what happens as you read through the Bible is that uh, in the next book of the Bible, it takes quite a while to get there, is 430 years later, the descendants of this individual, Abraham, have become a great nation, and they stand in what is the Sinai Peninsula today. They stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they receive from God the law, and they're brought into this relationship with God formally that is called the Mosaic Covenant. Now, what he's comparing is what happened to Abraham and the covenant that God entered with Abraham in Genesis 15 with the law and what was given to his descendants much later. And that's what this passage is about. There are three contrasts. And their three contrasts are meant to show that uh, the, the gospel, the message of Jesus, is based on the promise, and it's not based on the law. It's a promise that you can only receive, and you can only receive it by faith, because it's rooted in what was said to Abraham. Now, 
Let me just show you the three points that are made here. The first one is simply this. The first contrast is that the promise came first and the law came later. It's just a chronological point that this promise was confirmed by a covenant in Genesis 15. And so he begins by saying in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And the point is basically this. He probably is using the word covenant here the way it was often used, but not always used, to describe the last will and testament of a person. And he's saying when a person writes their will, no one is able to change or alter what that person put into his will. And uh, that's the main point, that the covenant was made with Abraham. That covenant was like the establishment of an ironclad promise given to Abraham. It could be fulfilled, but the context of it, the content of it, couldn't be altered by what happened later in another covenant called the law. Now, that's simply a fact. The promise was given first. The covenant with the nation of Israel was made second. But then here's what he builds on that. It's the second kind of contrast he made. Not only is it true that this one, the promise to Abraham and the covenant that was connected with that, preceded in time this covenant that was made with Israel, but the second contrast is the promise referred directly to Jesus Christ. The law doesn't. The law refers indirectly to Jesus Christ. Now let me say, in the passage, he doesn't really develop this point. It's just implied. His point is just the first half of it, which is the promise referred directly to Christ. So look at verse 16, where he says this. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, in the first service, I felt like I just couldn't make this clear. People are really sleepy or something. Now, I'm usually at 11.15, the more intelligent people come and they're, you know, more awake at that point and that kind of thing. But I hope I can make this, this clear because it requires a little explanation. There's a word used here that he, he, he bases his whole discussion on. And in the original way in which both the Old Testament and the New Testament are written, it's the word seed, The seed of Abraham is referred to throughout the Bible. Seed simply means your descendants. And the reason the word seed becomes important is that it's what you would think of as a collective singular. It's one of those words that is singular, seed, even though we do have a word seeds, but it usually is used to refer to plural. It like functions as both a singular and a plural at the same time. So when God said to Abraham, In you and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He could have meant in you and in all of your descendants. In fact, he did mean that. Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Or he could mean in you and in one of your descendants could all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that word seed is translated consistently in the Bible that I'm using by the word offspring. Which is helpful in two ways. It's helpful first because we don't use the word seed to refer to a person's descendants. If someone said to my children, oh, you're the seed of Tom, they might be a little offended. They might feel you're being crude even. I don't know. You know, it's not the way we use it. You might use the word offspring. At least we understand that in that way. And um, 
Offspring is also a collective singular. The only difference is we don't even have a plural word, offsprings. He uses it in this passage, but when I typed it on my computer, it immediately underlined it as a word that needed to be corrected because there is no such thing as offsprings. It's a true collective singular. It only, uh, it can mean singular, but it can mean plural. And so it's this word seed or offspring that he bases his whole argument on. We use a seed that way today when a farmer plants We don't say he plants a seed unless it's a single seed that he's planting. He sows seed in his field. If he he gets what he needs in order to plant his fields the next year, he's purchasing seed. It's a a singular word that usually carries a plural meaning. And, And he refers to that here when he says, when it's said, I'm giving this promise to you and to your offspring or seed, it doesn't say seeds. Now, this has been really difficult for people down through the centuries because if you just take it literally, he's making a point that isn't even true. The word seed is a collective singular, which means it can be plural or it can be singular. When he says to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, it could mean, and in fact, it is used in the Old Testament to mean in your whole line of descent, your physical descendants, through them, the nation, the whole nations of the earth will be blessed. Or he could mean in one of them, the nations of the earth could be blessed. So if you just want to take this literally, it's like you scratch your head. What in the world is he talking about? The fact that it says in your seed doesn't mean it had to refer to an individual. But there's a few things to, to think about there. The first is Paul knew that. In fact, in the book of Galatians that we're looking at, In this same chapter, in verse 29, he uses the word seed, translated offspring, to mean a large number of people. So it says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, singular, heirs according to promise. He's talking to all believers. He said, if you belong to Christ, then you are one of the true seed of Abraham. And he obviously understands that the word seed there, or offspring, means plural, you are one of his many descendants that were promised him. So he's aware of the fact of, the, of that fact. It, the second thing you have to note is that the rabbis used the word this way oftentimes when Paul was, was writing. He himself was a trained rabbi. And so they would sometimes take a singular that had a plural meaning and make a point out of it in interpreting the Bible. And so they would have understood what Paul meant here when he said this. But most importantly... It, All that Paul is doing in this passage when he makes a distinction between singular and plural is he's noting that by using that word that could be singular or could be plural, it opens the door to the biblical fact that it was only one descendant of Abraham who became the blessing of the whole world. Now, the biblical reasoning goes like this. Why is it that the seed of Abraham refers ultimately to one individual? Well, you have to start at the beginning of the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible, Adam, the first man, is the representative man, the covenant head of all human beings. His choice becomes the choice of all of his descendants because we're a race and we have this uh, unity that ties us all together genetically. And so the biblical reasoning said when Adam sinned, his failure led 
to the first promise. It's right after Adam's sin in Genesis chapter 3 that the first promise of redemption is stated. It's stated actually embedded in the curse that's placed on the serpent. When God says to the serpent right after the fall, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this promise is sometimes called the first promise of the gospel because it's a statement that there will arise a physical male descendant, singular, of the woman, who is called he in the passage, who will be the means of destroying the serpent. To bruise the serpent's head means to crush it, to kill the serpent. To be bruised on the heel means to have your heel crushed, which is a a, a blow that is not fatal And what happens ultimately is that a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, a male descendant of the woman, arises Jesus Christ who accomplishes that according to the New Testament. Now, that promise that was embedded in one statement to the serpent becomes repeated in seed form, you might say, in the multifaceted promise given to Abraham. Abraham is told, in your offspring... In your seed shall all the nations be blessed. And what happens at that point, when that's stated clearly in Genesis 22, is that this promise that related to any male descendant of the woman, the first woman, now becomes narrowed down to a descendant of Abraham, specifically of all the people living at that time in 2100 B.C. The same thing is then promised in the next generation to Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis, and it's made again to Jacob in chapter 28, the promise that in you and in your seed shall all the nations be blessed. And at each point, the promise is getting narrowed down. Later, it's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the great-grandson of uh, Abraham, named Judah, one of the 12 grandsons named Judah, is told that it's his seed that will become the ruler, the redeemer. And then many generations later, the same promise is contained in the covenant with David that's in 2 Samuel 7, that it will be his descendant as one of the kings of Israel who will arise who will crush the serpent's head. So what I'm saying is that in the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham, the line gets narrowed down, narrowed down, narrower and narrower until you come to the promise made to David. It had to be someone from within Judah, from the specific family of David, from the obscure town of Bethlehem, who would arise to be the fulfillment of the promise. And as the New Testament says, that was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only that we know Jesus was the promised seed, Because he was the descendant of David, though that's proven in both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies to demonstrate that both from his mother's side and his father's side, he was a descendant of David who arose. But there's another reason why he had to be the promised seed. Since in Genesis chapter 3, sin was brought about by the rebellion, the sin of Adam, It would require someone to reverse the curse, to overturn it, who would arise and not fail in the way that Adam failed. It would require a human being who perfectly obeyed God, unlike Adam. And we're told in the New Testament, in many places, but in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. 
Now, up to that point, it's simply saying it is a, he is a true human being. He's a, the seed of Eve, a male human being. We're not, we have a high priest who can sympathize our weaknesses because he has been tempted, just as we are yet, it says, without sin. In other words, he shared our humanity perfectly, but he perfectly obeyed the law among all human beings, all the descendants of Eve, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, and of David. Of all of their descendants, only one descendant kept the law perfectly. And he did that so that he could then accomplish one more thing, that is take the curse of the law on those of us who didn't keep the law perfectly. Now, I know I've taken you down a long line of reasoning to get there, and I can tell that you followed. At 9.30, it just wasn't happening. But, you know, um, I hope they listen to the podcast of this message or something, you know, and get it. But, you know, it's referring back to the original promise given to Eve and then building on that. And his point is simply this. When the promise was given, we know by its fulfillment, by what has happened, that that seed, that offspring that the promise was given concerning ultimately, is one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Now, the point could be made that it required a multitude of descendants, because that was part of the promise, too. It required a multiple, um, a, mul- a multitude of seed of Abraham in order to get there, because it had to be only one descendant, ultimately, but they had to maintain their covenantal relationship with God in order for eventually there to be one born who came demonstrably through all those lines down to the Lord Jesus Christ. But his point is the fulfillment required one person. The promise was given directly about what Jesus has done, unlike the law. The third point he makes is simply this. The first is that the promise came first, then the law. It's just chronological priority. The second is that the promise referred directly to Christ. And the third is that the promise was unconditional, while the law is conditioned on obedience. The promise was unconditional. The law is conditional. Now, that basic idea is rooted in the nature of a promise as compared to a command. One is unconditional and one is conditional. But it's what he says in verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The idea is law and promise are two different things. So if it came first by promise, then it couldn't come by law because they're mutually contrasting. One is a form of purchase, whereas the other is a form of gift. The promise about Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, was given freely by God. Now, I want to develop this a little bit by having you turn your Bible back to Genesis chapter 15. I think it's on page... 12 uh, in the Bibles that you're using. Genesis chapter 15. We looked at this last week. Let me just note again. We looked at the first six verses. And in those verses, here's what we find. Abraham was given this promise in Genesis chapter 12. And a number of years pass, and he still has no children. He's been married to Sarai, his wife, all of that time. They are now becoming old, and there is no promised seed. There's not even one, much less a multitude. 
And Abraham begins to wonder, is this really going to happen? How can I know it's going to happen? And God confirms for him again the same uh, element of the beginning of the promise, multitude of descendants. He says, go outside your tent. It's pitch black out. He says, look at the sky. Count the stars if you can count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And it says next, verse 6, and Abraham believed God, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. That is, he declared Abraham to be a righteous person on the basis of his belief in the promise. And, And the point made last week was, justification by faith was found in that statement in Genesis chapter 15. It doesn't say Abraham obeyed the Lord, and the Lord weighed in a balance his obedience versus his disobedience and decided, yeah, you're good enough. It says Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted him. He he acted on behalf of the promise because he accepted the promise. And the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Now, what happens after that is what he's referring to here. What happens after that is, is uh, very, very important in the unfolding story of the Bible. And it's this. God tells Abraham to take some animals and to cut them apart. And, and he undergoes what is called a covenant ratification ceremony. It's not called that in the passage, but it's the kind of ceremony people would use to um, enter into some solemn agreement. And in, in a covenant, there are usually two sides, and what the cutting of the animals signified was this. He had them take three mammals from the flock and cut them right down the center, like dismember them into two pieces and put them apart from each other, across from each other. And he had to do that with three animals. And then he had them take two birds, and Abraham was to kill them, probably wring their neck. But he wasn't to cut the birds in half. He just set one dead bird on this side and one on this side. So you have this walkway in between these dead animals that have been sacrificed. And what would happen that's described in the book of Jeremiah in a covenant ratification uh, is that the two parties agreeing to some solemn thing would walk between the pieces of the animals, and it was a symbolic action saying, may I be like these animals if I break this covenant, if I don't fulfill my obligations under this covenant. And then what happens is Abraham does that, he, he sets these pieces against each other, and we begin to read in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then God goes on and tells him some information about what's going to happen in in the process of fulfilling the covenant, what's going to happen to his descendants before the covenant is fulfilled, and then we pick up in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Now, this is really astonishing what happens here. It's almost frightening in a sense. Abraham does not obligate himself to the covenant. He's put into a deep sleep. He feels terror, apparently, at observing what happens. But what happens is, symbolically, God, in terms of shown as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, passes between the pieces. And that's why this is called the covenant, or the promise covenant, this one. This covenant confirms the promise that God made. The promise was made freely by God. 
And only God confirms it. And and what's so frightening about it, it's called a self-maledictory oath, which means it's where a person acknowledges the covenant curses falling on them if they break it. They're saying, if I don't do this, may I be like that? And the Lord God himself walks between, so to speak, passes between the pieces of these severed animals, and he takes upon himself unilaterally, without any expectation from Abraham, that he will fulfill the promise that he made. It's why it says in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter chapter 7, 6, that uh, God made the promise more secure by an oath that he took. So that the heirs of the promise might understand the nature of what's going on, he didn't only enter a covenant and make a promise, but he confirmed the promise by an oath. And it's referring to this uh, self-cursing Oath. Now, I tried to show that in the worship folder. I don't know if this is particularly helpful, but it simply is meant to show this little diagram that the promise that was made is the promise that unfolds in the rest of the Bible, and it's only fulfilled in the new covenant that's made through Christ. And that the other covenants the Bible describes, the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, that these are simply the unfolding in time of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The point is this, the promise was given unconditionally. It was given freely, just like a gift is offered freely. Now, a parent might say to a child, if you work hard and graduate from college, I'll give you a car. And that sounds like a promise, but technically that's not a promise. That's a contract. Because the child has to fulfill the obligations. They have to work hard and graduate college, and then they get the car. Now, I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. I did that, which makes me sound like just the greatest parent who ever lived. But the fact is, I gave them each a $500 beater car that I had allowed them to drive for a number of years to get to college. And and I said, if you graduate, I'll give you this car. There's nothing wrong with doing that at all. I'm not apologizing for that. But it's not what the gospel is. It doesn't illustrate the gospel. It illustrates a contract of some kind. The gospel is illustrated by a gift given by a free promise, an unconditional gift that can only be received by faith. Now, on the other hand, the nature of the law, which isn't developed here, is different The law is a contract that's entered into in Exodus chapter 20, in which God says he will do certain things. He will be the God to these people and protect and care for and bless them. And they say, we will keep the covenant standards, which are the Ten Commandments and the other laws that unfold that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law is represented by a statement in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which we looked at in the preceding passage, that says, You therefore shall keep my statutes and my rules, God says to Israel. If a person does them, he shall live by them. That's a contract. Do this and you shall live. The law requires two parties, God and a group of people. A covenant generally requires two parties, but the gospel is the free promise of God, which only God himself obligated himself to ultimately fulfill, which he fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the free promise of God to all who believe it, forgiveness of sins, freedom from the curse, acceptance by God, new life in Christ, and all the changes that come with that. 
But it doesn't come about because we obeyed the law. It comes about because Jesus obeyed the law. Because he kept it perfectly. He proved himself to be the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, and so forth. The promised descendant who would perfectly obey God, unlike our first father did, and then on that basis be qualified to also make the payment of the curse of sin when he died on the cross. And we know that, Paul says, because the promise came first and the law came later, so that the promise has priority. We know that because uh, the promise pointed directly to Christ. It was stated to Abraham in such a way that he, would, he and his seed would be the means of blessing, and ultimately we know that that seed was singular because of the way it was fulfilled. And because the promise is unconditional, was based on a covenant that only the Lord affirmed, bound himself to by a unilateral oath. The law, on the other hand, was conditional, based on obedience. It was a covenant that Israel promised to obey, but Israel and all human beings have failed at it. However, one obeyed. Now, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we do is we place ourselves, those of us who participate, we place ourselves among the promised seed of Abraham in the plural sense. If you are Christ's, it says, if you belong to Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, children according to promise. We place among ourselves among those who are the fulfillment of the promise. We say, I am joined by faith to the seed of Abraham, the one who fulfills the promise to crush the serpent's head, the one who fulfills the promise to be the source of blessing to all the nations of the earth. We count ourselves among that multitude who will stand before the throne and sing the song that is being sung even now before his throne. Worthy are you. Receive glory, honor, and blessing because you were slain and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And what we won't say is we won't say, I'm so glad I'm worthy to be here because you gave us commands and I kept them and you weighed it in the balance and decided I was good enough. No one's going to say that. We won't stand before the throne on that day and say, we're so glad we can be here because we were good and we had such a spotless character. Because we don't. The gospel says, we will say, you are worthy, Lord Jesus Christ, because you were perfectly obedient. You had spotless character. Your life proved that you were the one to be the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the Redeemer of all who believe in you and all who share your destiny by faith. That's the gospel. Let's give thanks for that. Our gracious God and Father, again, we thank you that you give us this truth. And again, we pray that even though this is an involved kind of book to read through and think through, even though that's true, help us to understand that It is underlining again and again in different ways this basic fact that salvation must be a free gift that is received by faith, that it can't be a form of purchase because none of us could be good enough. We couldn't pay the price. There was only one who could pay it in our place. We pray that even this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that would be on the forefront of our minds, and our hearts would be filled with a sense of joy in your presence that you receive us. 
pray these things.